Hi, I'm Matt Farrell, and welcome to In The Weeds podcast. I'm the ethos that food and drink bring people together. I've been in the hospitality business for over 20 years. I am now co-founder of GSG, an independent restaurant and bar group in the UK, and freelance food and travel writer, recently becoming part of the Guild of Food Writers. In the weeds is a common term used in the hospitality industry when things are quite simply too much to handle. But like anything in life, things need to worsen before they get better, and triumphing through adversity often sparks a sense of unison. Throughout the podcast, we go in the weeds with some high-profile hospitality and entertainment professionals, raw conversations on travel, culture, food and drink, and how it can help bring society together. Without this, what have we got? Everybody's still got to eat and drink, right? So sit back, listen, relax, dream a little, and let's bring some positivity to the table. We're all in this together. Welcome to the first episode of In The Weeds podcast, which we are now in times of isolation, hence our video conferencing. So tonight we're going in the weeds uh, in our first episode with multi-award winning hospitality brand and development strategist, James Haken, CEO of Think Hospitality and restaurant marketer and innovator. So firstly, James, welcome. It's been a strange couple of weeks, right? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Matt. And yeah, it's been nuts. Uh, I think that for anyone involved in the hospitality sector or anyone or full stop, but let's hope that these uh, these issues are meaning that we'll become more more hardy in how we deal with things and hopefully we'll never have to deal with such craziness again. Absolutely. Um, you know, let's hope we can take positivity out of anything. So first of all, to our audience listening, you, you know, you you your CEO of uh, Think Hospitality, which is a very influential group in the hospitality industry. How, how have you got to that point? What's, what's been your journey? I think it's been a really, uh, a really random journey, so to speak. But I grew up in hospitality. My parents ran restaurant. Uh, I was, uh, we were involved in pubs and uh, various other things in Cornwall. And then I uh, was really kind of encouraged or pushed to go into law because I was quite academic. So I went to go to university, decided that that wasn't for me, dropped out and uh, decided to go and work at Glen Eagles in Scotland. We had a family connection there and uh, it really reinforced the professionalism of hospitality and how it could be a career. In fact, I had people from all over the world working. I mean, a thousand of us from everywhere. And it really shaped my vision of the opportunities that were out there much more than what we really see as a uh, see when we're at school or encouraged to encouraged to look at careers. And I think that from there, I've lived and worked in uh, five countries, worked with another 20 plus on top of that. And uh, really, I've kind of weaved my way through picking up lots of skills. I see myself as very much a generalist, but someone that is absolutely focused on hospitality. And that's kind of been what's brought me to here. Uh, I, I love the fact that it allows me to travel. I love the fact that I get to meet incredible people like yourself and all these other people around the world that I get to meet. I love going out and being able to dine with all these people and just chat with people and hospitality people are the best people on earth right oh yeah absolutely so you consider yourself an operator still yeah i mean i think that throughout uh, throughout everything i've done i've really really been keen to try and make sure that i keep my hand in frankly i i love nothing more than 
maitre d'ing and standing and I love the theatrics and the acting that I think if I wasn't doing this frankly I'd have probably been an actor terrible one so luckily I'm doing this but uh, I do love that obviously nowadays I'm getting a lot more of that being on stage and the public speaking element but uh, I do love being in the thick of it with hospitality and on that basis it's why I invest as well as consult uh, and actually at times like this uh, I think it's it's the times that we we find ourselves back doing some of that stuff and I wouldn't have it any other way really. Yeah that's really interesting I, w- I wanted to touch on some of the things that um, I don't know if this has, has come from the sort of everyone going into isolation, but is is the hospital live uh, aspect that you've you've uh, I've seen over the last few weeks now? Is, was that spawned from what happened? Was it like an off off the cuff kind of scenario? Yeah, it was absolutely. Uh, the, the way it kind of worked is that our business is international. I think hospitality. I think about. of our business comes from overseas and only 20% is here. And frankly, uh, we we saw the whole COVID-19 coronavirus thing coming pretty early on. We had uh, cancelled contracts left, right and centre from overseas because people started uh, slowing down in terms of their travel and places that were very destination focused suddenly kind of stopped hotel clients pulled and so we probably got more sight of it three or four weeks out than most people in the UK I remember saying to some of our business partners that you know I think we need to start thinking about what we're going to do with this and someone went well you know it's just toilet roll missing from missing from some supermarkets like just chill out. Yeah. I was like, no, no, I, I think I, I think we're going to be in a full closure position within a month. And uh, people just weren't believing it. Uh, and then we saw Italy go into closure. And I was like, oh, uh, yeah, uh, this is happening. And uh, my immediate response, we went from 17 live clients to two projects, uh, pretty much overnight or within two days. Yeah. And uh you know, a business that we spent three years building was is, is gone, uh, but that's no different from a lot of people. I thought there's two ways we can deal with this, really. One of which is that I can sit here and drown my sorrows and feel sorry for myself, and that's not the way that I do things. Or I can try and be positive and, frankly, get shit done. Yep. Uh, so I started off to begin with going, I'm just going to get on the lobbying bandwagon and we're going to push this hard. So went went in, did lots of communication, wrote letters to the prime minister, MPs, encouraged other people to do the same. But there were some other people who were doing a really good job of that. And we, I think we got a relatively good package quite early on uh, within that process. So uh, we can debate on the politics of it and all the rest of it, but compared to a lot of other countries and we lost a business in another country that were invested in because there was no support. So I thought, well, actually that's taken care of. And there's some great people like Jonathan Downey and from, uh, and Kate Nichols and Mark Stratton and all those guys who are fighting the good fight. And I'm not sure I can add much more. And I thought, well, actually what, what would we be best to do right now? And the problem is most people are quite focused solely on saving their business. And of course that's like, it's what they're going to do. And I thought, well, actually, I've been there and you've been there. And most people we know have been in this position where you're working 50, 60 hours a week on your feet in this sociable environment. You know, you have after work drinks. It's this most incredible sector for all of that. But at the same time, when that all stops suddenly and you're sent home, my worry is massively for the wellness uh, and well-being of, of our colleagues. 
uh, in the in the wider industry and that's really where hospo live came from we got chatting with uh, friends and colleagues at flow hospitality and they said well let, let's let's do something we've got yoga people i'm not a yoga person as you can probably see uh, but uh, i said well i've got the business contacts and let's pull it together so we're now doing eight sessions a day monday to friday uh, on everything from wellness to uh bartending to uh, kitchen live cookery demos big industry icons and uh, i've got to say the support has been incredible and uh, it really is about that it's just helping people to have something in their day that provides some degree of structure even if they tune into one thing a day it means that it's one thing a day that they know is there and that's why it was important to me that it wasn't one or two things a day it was it was four or five hours worth of content every day, uh, which is a mission, but we're, uh, we're working it so far. That's cool. I think, I think the mental health for a lot of people at this time, it's definitely something that needs to be high on the agenda. Um, I, think, I don't know if you saw with it, Terry Waite, uh, if you remember Terry Waite when he was um, one of the hostages for years, he, he, he was chained up literally for what? He could only go to the toilet once a day for five years, but he said he still ran the routine in his head of the day, even though he was chained to a wall uh, for, for the whole day. So I, I've, I've heard that a lot about structure and routine. And, you know, with kids, it's quite difficult, but um, I think it's very important. Um, but I've seen, I, I think it's good from what I saw. I was watching a bit of JJ Goodman on there. It was always entertaining. Yeah. Really, and and the, other, the other one I want to speak to you about was uh, a pavement away. So you touch a little bit on that. So you're very much the humanitarian here, I think. All right. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, just happy to do my bit, frankly, yeah, yeah. but only a pavement away was set up by a good friend and colleague of mine, uh, Greg Mangum, and that was about 18 months, two years ago now, mm -hmm. and he was walking down the Strand one night, and he uh, was going out for dinner and couldn't believe just how many homeless people were were on the on the streets of London, and I mean, it's not just London, right, it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, well, it seems odd to me, this is to his wife, Jill, who the, the, the most fantastic couple. Uh, it strikes me that as a sector, hospitality, we've got so many vacancies right now. And with the whole Brexit thing coming up, it's only going to get worse. And there's all these people who are really in need of help and a step up. Uh, and there must be an opportunity to do something together. And uh, Greg always says, well, then my wife said, well, you know, You've got some time why don't you do something about it and i always thought that was a really really lovely story and then i met his wife and i was like no that's definitely the way this happened <laughs> uh she uh she she's a real real driving force uh the two of them are together so he set about saying well actually let's do that and another good friend of ours ben stackhouse and pub love uh they they did the first couple of people and uh it worked 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 and then didn't work because they didn't necessarily have it all right and it you know it's not as simple as picking someone up off the street because they need to have committed a certain amount and be willing and wanting i mean it's that whole thing that we know that sometimes you've got to hit the bottom to be able to come back up which yeah. a lot of a lot of people talk about so what the the organization has set up and it's now become 
uh, I've, it's still very small, but it's become big in terms of its ambition. The ambition is to put hundreds of people into work every year. And uh, we work, we really see ourselves as the connecting party between the homeless charities and also charities that support veterans and also those people who are vulnerable and who are coming out of prison, ex-offenders, on one side and the hospitality sector. So you see ourselves as a conduit between the two what we can't do is solve all the world's issues what we can do is provide support that enables those two people to come together and it's been working really well uh super proud to be involved i'm, I'm an ambassador in that project and uh really just helped try and uh fly the flag for them in opportunities like this but any way that people can help you can go online and there's volunteering opportunities and uh you know you can donate and all of those great things so. That's uh, that, that's cool. So where can you where can you go online to do that? Yeah, I think it's uh, search only a pavement away, and it will come up straight away, and on all the main social media networks too. Because I, I think yeah, it's a big, um, it's definitely a big issue across the UK, if not getting worse. So would I would think you're starting to see more initiatives like that. I remember five or ten years ago, you couldn't even give food away to the homeless. It was seen that you might have a a court case against you, whereas there's things now like, uh, I can't remember the word, but too good. there's a couple of initiatives where you, you kind of bag the food up at the end and it goes to the homeless as well. So I think people are starting to, um, you know, it's come together in that sense rather than it being um, seen as a, as a problem. Um, I'd say that's great. I think, that, and the reason it's called only a pavement away is exactly that point, is that it's it's unbelievable when you speak to people who've been on the programme and you speak to people who've been in prison or on the street and it it isn't this whole thing that it it's something that happens to someone else. I mean, we had someone come and speak at the conference last year who was an ITV news anchor right. and within 48 hours of not being on the screen because of alcoholism and divorce and other things he ended up on the streets i mean that's just a nuts position and it really highlighted to me that if that can happen to someone of that caliber then of course it's very easy to happen to frankly me you or anyone else absolutely yeah too good to go it was the one i was talking about um but yeah no it's that that, that is true uh well i you've, you've mentioned public speaking there i think the first time i i met you was at the propel summer conference um, where I was doing one of the one of the first public speakings myself. Uh, what I would say is you're, you're very much of a natural at it. I, I used to I've got really sort of really used to get really nervous with it until until maybe I don't know six or seven months ago. But you, is it something that's taken you a long time to do, or, or were, you, were you always kind of like you said you wanted to be an actor, or were you always kind of hit to the stage was was the way forward, or? Yes, my mum used to say, you could never shut me up. So uh, I've definitely always had a skill for talking, uh, probably too much at times. And uh, from quite a young age, I was involved in amateur dramatics. And actually, that was really important to me. And I think as a lot of people do, you lose sight of this stuff as you go on. uh, And that stuff falls away. But in terms of public speaking, I was very lucky that my school was involved in a project called University of the First Age, and it was about peer, mentor, peer mentoring uh, within students at school. And I ended up running our peer mentoring scheme and got involved in a national initiative. And then at like 14, 15, was, 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 
like a national representative for peer mentoring and I was speaking at teaching conferences at like 14, 15 years old. I remember the first ever one I did was at Cafe Royale in London and it was in front of 700 teachers. So it was a, uh, it was a, a, a definite, uh, a definite memory for sure. And uh, from there, I've got to say that it, it dropped away a little bit and actually it was really the writing that picked up. When I was 18, I wrote to Mark Lewis at the caterer uh, at the time it was a caterer and hotel keeper and said uh, it strikes me that everyone that writes for your magazine is uh, old and old male and white and uh, I don't understand why you don't have more younger contributors and I'm an 18 year old I'm working at uh, Glen Eagles in Scotland I uh, you know I feel myself to be quite educated and I'd like to write for you and they came back and said well actually why don't you write some letters to the editor so that's what I did and from there I got a, uh, a magazine a regular column for a magazine called Catering in Scotland and then when I moved to New Zealand uh, I ended up being a columnist for the hospitality and business magazine there and then that kind of flowed on to writing for the New Zealand Herald and the Sydney Morning Herald and I think to me the one thing one piece of advice I have for anyone that wants to do something is take every opportunity and the stepping stones is how you will get there is nothing gets given to you you don't write write to a national newspaper and ask to write an article and just get it you do something small bigger 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 and and as I started building my uh, my network and building the writing I was then asked to speak again publicly at various events and it kind of went from there and now I think now I speak between 30 and 40 times a year and uh, I mean in the last year I think I've spoken in 15 or 16 countries so it can take you all over the world it's quite incredible. All, all in English or have you got other, other languages in there? I don't have any other languages. It's probably one of my biggest regrets, and I, I wish I could, but I think us lazy English people uh, really get it quite lucky all over the world. That said, last year I was at uh, one event where I was uh, translated into Arabic, Mandarin, uh, Russian. I think it was like seven different languages. It was quite nuts. Yeah, that's crazy. It's beautiful language, Arabic. So, uh, in in regards to speaking and writing, which which is one you prefer, or you? You take both of them. Uh, yeah, I think I think both really come quite natural. I, I I really love standing on stage. I think that to me, I have this nervousness before I go on stage every time. I mean, and I do this all the time, and I get this nervousness. I feel like I want to pee myself for a few minutes, and then I go on stage, and uh, it all flushes away. And uh, I never write my scripts. I don't write, I build a presentation. I never write what I'm going to say down and I just let it flow around the presentation. And to me, it comes it, it comes very naturally, but I think that uh, it's taken a long time to get to that point. What about where you've, the best place you've ever given a speech or a talk that sticks in uh, the teacher? I spoke at the Google head office in San Francisco, or outside San Francisco, Silicon Valley. That was pretty incredible. Also, a uh, on a stage in New York and uh, Broadway, and that was quite incredible too. So, I think those two are probably the two that uh, are memories that, that last for sure. You obviously travel a lot for work, uh, and I want to want to try and stay away from the words COVID nineteen and furlough and cetera and as much as we can, and obviously keep some sort of positive scope. Uh, and and talk a little bit about travel. Uh, obviously, it's something that 
we cannot do at all at the moment and it, it's kind of it gets your mind wondering of all the places and the smells and stuff that you you know you you experience so i've read here that you you know you've spoken 10 plus countries on more than 40 occasions that's more than that is it yeah it's probably a little out of date now but it was probably last year but yeah i uh but for me it's not just work either i i really i really make the most of the time that i'm away and try and spend more time in places where possible i have a personal ambition to visit 100 countries before i'm 40 i'm currently 33 and i'm at 57 so far so it's not too bad given that i was uh by the time before i was 18 i'd only been to two countries that's good way it's good way are you missing traveling at the moment or are you enjoying the family time I think a mixture of both. I, I'd be lying if I say I didn't miss it. I think that uh, I'm used to being on a plane at least once a week and being somewhere and with people. And I think to go from that to sitting at home is is definitely hard. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I've had one night where I was I was actually crying because I felt like just a little trapped in myself. And I think it's fine to admit those things, right? You know, we have to uh, have to let some of that stuff out every now and again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talk. My, my dad actually is is in Spain, and um, we're talking about seeing things before happen. But he he hasn't left his door now for twenty five days, and he's looking at like another five days. He's seventy nine years of age, so it's um you know things that they do hit home, especially on like that. And he he's just we talk about routine. He he's sticking in a routine to keep that. But he he said the same thing to me about you know. Yeah, I think people start to feel cooped up, don't they, inside? And it's about that. That's where the mental health thing come in. And I think you can you can deteriorate pretty quickly. I think you can be having a good day, and then I think it, your mood can change quickly as well. I've noticed it myself the last couple of days. I've just been a bit, bit more lethargic, a bit tired. So I'm just trying to keep myself motivated. Really, I don't know if you feel the same, but um, it can yeah, happen. I've been setting myself little challenges, particularly around cooking, but I'm on day 22 now because we've got the the three-month-old baby, Rory, and uh, I was very aware that I just didn't want him getting sick. Uh, So we we started self-isolating ahead of, a week ahead of most other people. And uh, so we've been here a wee while now, but I think that that's the other side of it, of course, is that frankly I wouldn't have as much time with him at home if it wasn't for this so uh, it couldn't have come as a, at a better time for me but uh, I'm, I'm always looking on the positive side. <laughs> so I've noticed, I've noticed actually on, on your social media and stuff that you've well talking that you've, you've been doing a bit of home cooking uh, I, I believe, and you went out foraging the other day. Yeah I've got to say very clearly for the record that whilst exercising I foraged. Of course yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I I love to cook. I've always loved to cook, actually. And uh, I think that I don't get to do enough of it. In fact, I think that the, the irony is that I eat out. I, we worked out last year, I think I ate out at the home between between 450 and 500 times because of work. So I rarely eat in the house at all, frankly. So to be able to be here and to cook, and uh, it's been great. But I've really been setting myself these challenges, I said. So I, I've, done, I've, I've done bread, uh, made a really great soda bread last night, which came out really well. Yeah, went down. I was inspired by Rosie Pryor, who uh, works at Mimo, the agency, and she was posted some uh, wild garlic pesto. So I went searching online where you could get what, where you could find wild garlic in the in the countryside, and I'm very lucky that I live 
in a small village in Bedfordshire. And we have an ancient woodland about half an hour walk from here. So I, I walked there for half an hour, walked around for, uh, I need to make sure that my timing's under an hour here. But I, uh, I was back within an hour, of course, but found my wild garlic right at the last minute. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, came back, made the pesto, got some nettles and made nettle soup as well. And uh, yeah, I've got to say, I feel actually much better having had the nettle soup. I know that it's uh, it's supposedly a, a superfood, and definitely feel better for it. Although uh, although you you get weird colours from all ends. So. I've seen you, you you cut a, a tray of flapjacks as well, or something the other day. Am I right? Yeah, I did some rum and uh, rum and raisin flapjacks, which was quite cool. Uh, using up, we have the most incredible drink store in my house, and actually, normally I don't I don't drink at home, so we only drink when we entertain. Uh, and uh, but we get given lots of gifts as alcohol because of the sector we're in and I also uh, also get sent gifts from PR people sometimes in terms of, like tasters I'm sure you do too so I've got this whole like cupboard and I was like this tiniest amount of gin left in this bottle and I was like I just want to get rid of this bottle so yeah. I, uh, I I searched online and found this flapjack recipe and uh, yeah, although probably not the best thing to have for breakfast the next day. <laughs> I know I've got I've got a bottle of Yamazaki Twelve there actually, but I, I'm, it's going up in value all the time. So I, I nearly opened it the other night, so uh, it's still it's still intact though. So I put it back under the stairs. We actually had a fr- one of my best friends lived with us for about five years. He's a sommelier, and uh, him and I between us could very easily finish a bottle of whiskey in the night. It's why I tend not to drink at home anymore. And uh, but I have a bottle of whiskey that I bought in New Zealand, and there was a distillery in New Zealand that produced whiskey in uh, in the eighties and nineties. And I managed to get my hands on a bottle of eighty seven. Uh, 1987 whiskey which is my year of birth and it's been in the back of the cupboard and I literally had to like scrawl my name all over it saying like do not drink this whiskey uh, and luckily he never did but I had to keep hiding it. <laughs> <laughs> and just touching on New Zealand there it's my, I mean I, I would always love to go is that uh, how did you find your time there? And a, uh, we, we, obviously we lived there for four and a half years and frankly it is a daily battle to consider we're permanent residents and can go back there. And I think particularly now that Rory is with us too, it's a daily battle to think about whether we should be living there in terms of uh, the whole way of life. And it, it's just, just, it really is a much better, better standard of living. And I don't say that in any negative way because I love living in the UK and I love living in England. It's, it's, you know, it's where I'm from. And I always get really annoyed when people say that they move away to get rid of and leave a place because that's not why I would go at all. But I think that, you know, you you have got everything in that country from skiing to surfing, from a beautiful vista to beautiful vista. And but it's actually, it really is the people and the way of life and the simplicity of life. It's, uh, it, it really does appeal. Uh, although, I, I did come back for a reason, and that was because it felt a little slow at the time. So uh, it may just be the grass is always greener, right? Yeah, right. And it's got a great coffee scene, though, New Zealand. Yeah, I uh, I don't drink coffee in the UK at all, having lived in New Zealand and Australia uh, for five and a half years. Because, And that's a lie. There's a few places that I do drink coffee, but for the most part, I, I dislike the coffee for for because I was very much spoiled. There was a really cool cafe just around the corner. I used to run a production company that uh, we did 
product, video production and uh, content marketing for hospitality businesses and destinations. And just around the corner from our production suite was uh, the most incredible little coffee shop. And I was spoiled every day, like morning and afternoon with a flat white and a, wow. uh, and a long black. And it was just... I'm literally trying to remember now and I can't <laughs> the life for me what it is. But uh, there's there's like five or six in, the, in in Dunedin where I live that are all, all really epic. But uh, the, oh, it's called Ironic, sorry. Ironic. I mean, they've they exported themselves really well as well. I mean, there's some great Australian and uh, New Zealand brands uh, across you're ever in ever in the city in London go to Roslyn Coffee a friend of mine James Henneby runs it and they he's Irish and his business partners uh, business partner is from Melbourne and uh, they do absolutely incredible coffee it's uh, it's one of the places that I, I I definitely do go and drink coffee when I'm in London <laughs> yeah it's definitely catching up uh, I mean I think I'd be I like have you been down to Ozone Shoreditch they, yeah, of course. Tucked a tuck behind Sarah House there, right? Yeah, they have a good setup and a good roastery. But yeah, like you say, I think um yeah, definitely being spoiled to New Zealand. But I think we I think we're going in the right direction. It's gonna take a long time. Um, randomly i was in the ukraine uh, a week before we went into lockdown it was my last overseas trip and i've not seen a, a coffee destination in europe that's up there as much as the ukraine kiev has got the most incredible coffee scene in fact i met one of the guys and we interviewed him i was there for a big conference and uh, he gave me a book that he wrote and it was about coffee culture and it's a huge book and I was just shocked and really struck me that the reason that the coffee culture works so well there is because actually people necess haven't necessarily got a huge amount of disposable income but they want to go out and do something that's aspirational and for coffee is a great accessible aspiration point because it's not hugely expensive but you can go out for an hour two hours chill in a cool looking coffee shop with some great coffee and uh, I, i'll try and find the name of the book and drop it over to you you're seeing that as well in the uk i think i think there's a lot of uh, a lot to be said about that where especially as maybe the millennials as well who, who they, and, and people who are maybe looking at the the pair strings or whatever if they, to go out for a couple of hours like you say you can spend um you can spend less than ten pound if you want to, but you know, I mean, we know as having Bowl Street coffee as well. You can have the other problem of people staying in there for five or six hours and spending two pound eighty, which is the other side of it as well. But one of the one of the big trends I think we're definitely going to see, which we started seeing hotels as hotels doing in in London and Berlin and other places, is charging per hour to be in, in a location in addition to your coffee. I think this pay to dwell, given this exact issue that you're talking about, is going to become really big. Yeah, I, I think so. So I think it has, something has to be done about it. I know there's like a few people banning, banning laptops already over the weekend. I mean, like you said, in Berlin, it's 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 quite forward thinking. But Berlin's pretty pretty good scene. I like that as well. Obviously got the bar on there and things like that. Um, you can't use your laptop there. And I, th I think... I think it has to, because um, like you say, they're getting busier and busier, so there is a lack of covers. Um, we have a, lot of a big problem there with, we, we lose a lot of covers because it looks full all the time, when a lot of the time it actually sometimes isn't. But it, it, I think that's a, a common problem in the, in the coffee industry, I think, talking about other countries and, uh, and different cultures and things. What, what are you missing the most? What, where would you like to go? I mean, if you, had to, if you could go somewhere right now, where do you feel that, yeah, has the biggest pull to you? Uh, 
I think that for different places for different reasons. I naturally uh, always have a pull to Scotland. It's where I met my wife. It's where we worked for a long time. Uh, I actually think the hospitality scene in Scotland is 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 very natural, and I think people have got this natural warmth in Scotland to deliver hospitality. And I think that uh, I really love just going and escaping to places that are are a little bit more wild than than uh, here. In fact, I always find this obscure thing that we book city breaks. I go and then try and find ways to escape the city because I realise <laughs> I much prefer being in the wilderness. Yeah. Uh, I think some of the other places are, would be the Atlas Mountains, uh, for sure, in, uh, in Morocco. Just yeah. I just love the whole the whole moroccan way of being and again marrakesh is crazy and a bit nuts but you get out of the city and it's this great place with great people which is what you find over and over i love uh alberta in canada uh I, one of my best ever trips was over the over the rockies in a camper van from calgary to vancouver and i think that i would repeat that over and over again yeah. uh, or if you are looking for a city then i would say my go-to and for for food and incredible service too would be Israel right now Tel Aviv yeah. uh, the, the stunning stunning uh, city um, you just don't consider that it's going to be the way it is uh, photos can't do it justice yeah I was I, I was actually looking to go we were, we were planning to go in a couple of months obviously we put that on hold now but because uh, you got a you got a melting pot of cultures there haven't you so sort of Middle Eastern as well as the kind of the Jewish kind of side of it as well. Yeah, and I think that you've all, you've uh, you've got quite a lot of that Mediterranean flavours to it, and then as you say, the kind of that uh, Arabic Middle Eastern, uh, the, the typical Jewish uh, cuisine. But I think in, in addition to that, you've also got a population who uh, love to go out and dine and eat out, and uh, you've also got people that really love showing off their their country, and they've got this massive pride and no matter where I went from a coffee shop to a beachside cafe to uh, the, some of the best restaurants, just the food was incredible. And there's brilliant, be, uh, brilliantly long beach to walk down and old, the old town of Jaffa, which is obviously the namesake of the orange uh, is, uh, is a beautiful old Harbor uh, town. And there's some really great free walking tours there as well. So it's, uh, it's definitely somewhere I recommend going. Yeah, another place that, I mean, I, I know you mentioned it in your, your talk last time at the Propel conference was Beirut. That's somewhere, again, we were planning to go. I was actually due to go to speak at a conference there. I think it's a, the, the Bifex or something like that. And they ended up cancelling mm -hmm. it due to uh, the political climate at the moment. But that was somewhere that had been on my list for a long time. And I was a bit um, disappointed. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, my business partner came back from there a few months ago, and uh, she was uh, she was really raving about it as well. Just uh, just that I've got to say, I really do love uh, Middle Eastern food uh, as a whole. I think that uh, the freshness of the flavors, the 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 whole, just the the experience of dining out is it's it, it means something that's quite significant in that culture. I think we can sometimes really commoditize our dining out. It feels like you're a number coming through a door at times. I know that you know yourselves and other people in our sector work really hard to make sure that's not the case. But I think it's sometimes quite hard. Whereas I think there you do feel like that it it's uh, there's some degree of I think real real truth to the food that you're eating which i think is nice yeah there's a great there's a good book i've got it um the, the, the saffron in the souks 
Very good. Yeah. Yeah. It's been out a couple of months, but it's, it's up very Middle Eastern led and obviously goes to basics in what you can cook and things like that. But um, to be honest, that's the one we have out the most at home. And I think it's a, it's a very uh, social way of eating as well. The potential we're going to see here from, from obviously COVID-19 is, is sanctions on travel abroad. There's two, two, let's say we come out of lockdown early and, and you might even see a boost in the, depending on what social distancing becomes, you might see a boost in, in the UK economy where people can't go abroad and potentially, you know, they have to holiday in the UK or they start spending the money in local economies. You're already seeing it a little bit with how people are ordering the food, uh, especially locally. I don't know whether that'll stick, but um, what, what, do you, what do you feel? Do you feel there's going to be a change in that? Or, and, and if so, how? I think there will. I think the idea of staycations uh, really became very big after the last uh, last recession. I think that it's very likely that we'll see that picking up again for the reasons you just gave. But I also think there's a there's a broader sense of why that will be. And I do think that uh, as someone that flies all the time, I'm I'm not making any judgment at all. But I think there's a there is a, a belief around the whole Greta movement, uh, the whole environmental piece, which is that. Air travel, air travel is probably quite a significant player in terms of global pollution and the whole global warming piece. And I think that we'll see more people decide to stay at home, or uh, and I think that that will drive drive domestic tourism for sure. But uh, I think that it's going to be a really interesting time after the end of all of this uh, because I'm or I'm not sure that there is going to be an easy ending in sight. I think that there will be some fundamental changes for sure, but. I think that I was quite lucky that the reason that I told you earlier that we didn't really go to many places overseas before I was 18 was that my dad very much drove into us that we went around the UK and saw our own country and uh, we went camping all the time and I, I there are some magnificent places to see here. One of the things that I struggle with at the moment is not just the lack of overseas travel. It's I mean we we've got National Trust membership, English Heritage membership, and we go somewhere like every time we're off. We're we're never in our house, so I've probably spent more time in my house the last three weeks than the last five years before it. But uh, I think there's a really interesting interesting play that we often ignore what's on our doorstep. Uh, I spent the first part of my childhood in Norfolk and my a lot of my family still live there. And uh, the joke is that I'm I'm from Great Yarmouth or the area of Great Yarmouth, about 10 miles away. And uh, my my friends who don't live in Great Yarmouth anymore always say, you know, how do you get away with saying where you're from? And the joke is that you say you're from the Norfolk Broads area rather than Great Yarmouth. But uh, it's actually not a bad place at all. And although... Uh, it slightly uh, needs some regeneration, let's just say. I think the broader area around it is absolutely superb. We've got some of the best places. And I think that, you know, I've got family there and friends that are there and just never go places. We go there and go canoeing or uh, go off and we're looking for beavers last time. We were, there's always something to do where you are. I think it just depends how much creativity you've got and where, where you want to, where you want to go and what you want to do because even on your doorstep, you'll find lots to do. I think so. I think so. And I think, I, I, I don't know, some, you know, UK towns are maybe, like you say, they need a little bit of regeneration. But once you get out of that into the countryside, some of the places are beautiful. The, the, the National Trust um, membership, I, I advise anyone to get that because it's, it's great. We use it, especially if we've got a young family. It's fantastic. 
Um, I really love it up your way too. I mean, I've I've been on. I, I've been lucky enough to work at, work around Liverpool lots, and I spend lots of time in and around the Wirral and uh, and out and in in the city itself. And I think that uh, it really blew me away the first time I came. I think what a visitable city, right? You've got the most uh, walkable city. There's so many attractions to see. You've got this amazing history. Uh, there's just so much going on. I think that I definitely recommend people to head up your neck of the woods, and you can uh, you can give a give a pitch to your own concepts if you want. Because I I know you're uh, I've been to your market, and that was incredible. But I'm sure your other places are great too. So thanks, <laughs> thanks. We'll keep that in. Definitely not editing that out. But it's good. It's good to think that um, you know Liverpool gets taught in that way now. Um, obviously, I'd say you know, fifteen to twenty years ago. You, you know the stigma attached to the city and, and to its people was was very unwarranted. Well, mate, I mean the city took a it's had a lot of regeneration as you can as you can see. Um, I think the, the once you installed uh, Liverpool one into there, although maybe not everyone's cup of tea with the brands etc. But the geographics of the city was just completely tied in, so it brought the other quarters in. And like you say, you can walk around and and. You know, you can you can see all of it in a day. But I, I always say to people, it's a great city. If you want to spend two or three days, you could have the greatest time, especially with the football as well. And if you if you're into that, you you, you know, your three day sort of tourism, it, it it was booming, and 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 it is in the city. However, I think it's still it's a very uh, as a business person, it's a very saturated market. Come come the middle of the week, Monday to Wednesday, were kind of. I'm sure that's the the before this and due to Brexit that was happening a lot in other cities as well. But I think I think there's a lot going for it. Um, I think it keeps it as well. It keeps it uh, more eclectic, independent vibe than say. But then if you go to Manchester, I think Manchester is absolutely booming as well. It's definitely becoming the London of the North, especially how people travel there as well and, and how they how they can commute um, back home on the tram and things like that. So, I mean, do you get to Manchester much as well? Or? Yeah, I've been doing quite a bit of work in Manchester recently, particularly around the Salford Keys area and uh, probably up or was up every couple of weeks. And I, and when I was running, uh, working with a team and running the restaurants with Thai Leisure Group, uh, we had three restaurants there as well. Uh, so we was up quite regularly. But I think the the food scene there, again, is is really grown and I think there's there's so many great entrepreneurs doing things in, in really great ways. I think that often the the everyone spotlights on London as this place that uh, new concepts start, but actually I I feel it's completely the reverse. I think you go to uh, as you say Liverpool, Manchester. Uh, I've got friends in Newcastle and Edinburgh doing great things. I think that actually quite a lot of the bubbling of of new, real, in, ingenious, innovative concepts is in other places, particularly in the north of England and Scotland, because actually it, it's uh, it's maybe maybe there's a greater opportunity to to do that uh, rather than London, which had traditionally been much more saturated, but. I think, as you say, we, we have seen Manchester go the same way. Uh, I'm not sure that they can fit many more restaurants in that city, Frank. No, I don't, I don't think so. I think, like, like, yeah, it's it's quite saturated now as well, I think. But it's a great vibe. I think that someone's, you know, you, you judge you judge a city on how many cranes it's got above it, Skyline, and, and Manchester has an absolute load of them at the moment, I think. But um, it, it's good because, you know, but it has, a, um, it has a great catchment area, whereas kind of like Liverpool... 
doesn't really have that. You've got the, the sea and the commuter sounds are not really as maybe as affluent uh, with all due respect than as like Didsbury and Shorten. And then, like you say, it links into Media City. Then it's a, it's an it's become an absolute beast. But I think I think you know strength in numbers. You're thirty minutes away. That's great. And what about um, what about elsewhere? Where, where's you know if you, let's say you do have to stay in the UK, where's going to be your go-to place to go to eat? to drink where, where where's going to be for when once they let us out of our houses where, where are you going to fa- first head to do you think i think that again the wilderness areas are definitely where my my heart is for sure i think that i've really not spent enough time in wales uh there's a number of restaurants i've got on my list in wales that i really want to go visit uh I, I love what Simon Rogan and the team do up at Long Clume and uh, I love spending time in, in the Lake District. So uh, definitely go up there, head up for some walking and I'm very keen to teach the, the wee man that he's, uh, he needs to, needs to travel well, uh, travel well and learn to, learn to experience restaurants from a young age because it's going to be his life for sure. Uh, I think that back home in Cornwall, Uh, there's so many great places to eat now I mean that's been the huge change I think that I left when I was 18 now 33 and I mean I remember that Nathan Outlaw was just starting up at that point and uh, I I worked at Jamie Oliver's 15 there on a work placement for a while and but now it's just there's just so many great people Paul Ainsworth's places obviously uh, the the seafood restaurant and all of all of uh, Steinville or Padstow, sorry. Uh, you know, just just so many great places to places to be. One small treasure a lot of people just don't know about. I was really lucky actually to go and work on the Arza Silly for a while. I worked a season there when I was eight, nineteen, I think, at the time, and uh, it's just the most incredible place. So it's the archipelago of islands, which are about twenty-six miles off the southwest point of Cornwall, so the most westerly part of uh, the UK, and. Uh, it, they have it's right in the center of the Gulf Stream, so you get this incredible climate, and there's uh, tropical plants that are there. When I show p- photos to people, they are adamant that it's the Caribbean, and it's yeah. not. It's right here in the UK, but no one ever goes there because it's quite expensive to get there on a on a ferry or uh, on on the helicopters. I worked on an island called Tresco, which is actually owned by the Duchy of Cornwall, so Prince Charles, but is leased on a long lease, I think 900 year lease by a family. And it's a kind of private island with uh, beautiful, uh, beautiful gardens called the Tresco Abbey Gardens. And uh, it's it's a superb place to go. And there's uh, some great food places. Actually, when I was there, there was a couple of Rosette restaurant. And I think one of the places has a Michelin star on one of the islands now. So it's definitely worth a worth a trip, a long trip, but it's well worth it. Yeah, maybe maybe they'll have to, uh, you know, rethink the price of travel in the UK after this, I think, because... You know, like you're talking about from Norfolk to Liverpool is a, is a hell of a drive, for example. You know, I think, um, I think, I think that's something they'll have to reform because it, like, it's just easy to jump on a plane, isn't it? Well, it was, anyway. Yeah, you can also, uh, I, I learned this randomly, but you can also get a direct train from Liverpool to Norwich, so you've got no excuse. It is the uh, most yeah. ball-aching train in the world. Uh, there's nothing on it, but you will get there, so... <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, I think we were on it the other day. Does it go? It doesn't go. Does it go through Sheffield? Does it? Yeah, I think it's yeah. it's one of those ones that like routes everywhere. I think Sheffield, Peterborough, and yeah, all over. But 
yeah. it's, uh, is there or it was last time I checked. Yeah, it's not it's not a Pendolino standard. Um, <laughs> but um, talking a bit of the future, you, you brought together uh, a focus group of like industry professionals where you were talking about the restaurant of the future. Uh, I know you touched on it at the restaurant and marketeer conference recently, the European Summit. Um, do you think, from what you said, obviously touch on what you said anyway, but what do, do you think that it's going to change again now from this? I think there are going to be changes for sure. I think there's probably going to be some fundamental changes that change uh, the urban urban environment uh, and the way that we live urbanly. I think that actually what's interesting is that uh, I think we it is the major cities that will see these changes. I think that it's very likely that we're going to get businesses question whether they need to pay for big offices anymore when we're used to doing this and whether when that's become a thing i think frankly we're also going to get to a point where we the short trips that were happening for work and if i think about the amount of times i've been asked to go overseas uh, on a on a trip for a one hour meeting somewhere and i've flown there and back and i think that uh, i think as we see more of this happening i think that's going to change that for sure i also think that there's going to naturally be uh, some degree of uh, potentially some degree of people people really really wanting green space and I think that uh, living in an apartment myself I'm always the first one normally to say well uh, it's the greatest place to live because it means that I can go out and experience green space but I don't need to cut my lawn uh, I'm the one that's sitting here now going how do I buy a friggin' house yeah. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll cut the law and if it means that next time this happens I can be sitting outside but uh, I think there's going to be some questions around that uh, and I think the other major major change it will see again really quite urban from an urban perspective is that uh, I actually think that this will end up resulting in people dining out more really I think that it, uh, from a from a city location perspective, I think that people will realise the opportunity that they have on their doorstep with dining out, and I think they'll also really really appreciate the the element of service and the element of uh, convenience that was available to them because they'll have missed it for so long. I mean, I'm sure you saw the same CGA stats that I did that said that, that it was only second to missing family was missing dining out was the second reason that and I mean I'm feeling that I'm sure you're feeling that uh, but I think we are looking at a kind of a, a, a weird a weird juxtaposition here and I think we can't look at the whole UK in the same way I think one thing this will have reinforced is for people living rurally or in smaller locations I think it has reinforced the message of self-sufficiency and dining from home and cooking better food potentially and being more healthy and i think that that stuff will mean that there's a potentially a a, a, a misbalance as i think what we'll see and actually i think potentially horribly and there may be an even greater divide between cities and uh, major cities and other parts in the uk because i think we've seen it divide for such a long time i think that's going to that's going to potentially keep coming but let's hope not Mm, I think so. Uh, one thing that does concern me is people seem to talk to doing like quizzes in the house and, and, and being, you know, I could see maybe not so much with food, but possibly on the, with the with the wet side of it and the drink side of it, that 
you know, people who, who can't afford to go out actually might take to, you know, doing quizzes in the house. And, and that seems to be the one thing that people have just gone mad for. I, I think that it's a novelty, frankly. I think there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a thing at play here, which I think we've got to be really careful of. And that is that everything that we're seeing happen looks much greater and magnified because there's nothing else happening around it, right? Yeah. So, and, and I think that if you think that there's more drinking still goes on in homes than out in pubs, I mean, it's, it's still, still the way that most people consume. But what you're doing is you're not getting people socially going to one house to meet. You're still, instead, you're doing it online. And I think that's just become more prolific because that's what it's replacing. I, I personally don't feel like that's going to be the main, main issue. I think the reason for that is very simple. We are sociable beings. We are pack. We are used to living in packs. And I think that uh, we're used to dining out with each other. And actually that whole sense, I've been working on a, uh, on a, uh, the history of dining out all the way back to our formation as human beings for the last couple of years as a side project. And I mean, it is an absolute baseline principle that we cook together and we dine together. It's, it's in us. And I don't think that's going to change because we've been locked up for three months. You think that it's that's an it's that's an interesting project. Is that if that that instinct is there from from years ago? You think? Yeah, I mean, there's some fundamental the the, the whole basis. I'm not sure whether you've heard it, but it's a good po- podcast to listen to. It's called Fifty Things That Made the Modern Economy, and uh, I think it's Tim Harford does it. And I think there's also a fifty fifty. Uh, items in the British Museum that I listened to and thought, well, actually, wouldn't it be great to do 50 things that made the modern restaurant? And uh, I've literally been researching this with friends uh, and a historian for a couple of years and really digging out. And actually, there's some real significant points that make the make how we dine out the case now. And I think that the ones that are really significant are, are that point about us coming together and living in family groups or in herds or packs or whatever we want to call them. Uh, I mean, that, that's been the case for, for quite a significant amount of time. I'm not very good with numbers and to remember the facts, you'll have to apologize, uh, accept my apologies. I think the second one is that uh, within that piece is obviously farming. Uh, and farming was really significant to us. Also, cooking was significant to us and fire. But actually, on a more, more recent note, uh, well, I say recent, I think the, the, if you think about the premise of dining out, the premise of dining out actually came about through people traveling, uh, through uh, coaching inns and that piece within the UK. Uh, and actually, secondly to that, it was about convenience. If you look back to, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to the Pompeii site, but at Pompeii, there's street food vendors on the site there. I mean, that's uh, that's in Roman times. You know, this it's not new. What you're doing at Duke Street Market is just borrowed from a thousand years ago and modernised, right? Well, what else? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm just kidding, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Uh, it's an interesting project. Have you got any any final date on that project? To be fair, I'm like it's one of those things that I really want to get rubber stamped by someone that's a little bit more knowledgeable. So I've been talking to a few universities and trying to get someone who's a historian to pick it up alongside me. And I think there's a good book in it, frankly. 
uh, I think that uh, it, it could be could be a great thing. I think interestingly, it's actually around 1700, mid 1700s that we saw the first version of what we would consider a restaurant today. I mean, uh, and that was in Paris. And the idea that you could choose to eat something different from other people that came in, because of course, traditionally, everywhere in the world, you ate banquet style, right? I mean, that that was that's never not been the case until the mid 1700s. And someone innovated and said, you've got to choose what you're eating. And uh, it came on its own plate. So it's, uh, it's quite fascinating. And that, that's how it began. That's in, in, in hospitality purposes or, or even in life, when, when have you most been in the weeds? I think in hospitality, there's, there's so many, right? I mean, I think that it's one of those things that you can go from, uh, go from being in what feels like uh, the, the calm to realising it was the calm before the storm within a matter of minutes. Uh, I think that uh, one, of my, one of my earliest memories of hospitality in terms of, and the craziness was Christmas Day at Glen Eagles. Uh, and you're obviously at top five-star hotel. It's, uh, it's incredibly, uh, incredibly, it's an incredible privilege working at that hotel over Christmas. It's just stunning. Like everything's great. The guests are generally really great. And uh, I was uh, working uh, working morning shift in the bar. So it's 8 a.m. And uh, what happened is there was a flood of people came out of the the restaurant. Uh, sorry, came out of uh, came out of one of the other bar areas uh, to me with drinking coffee who had still been up from overnight and went through this literally flowed through and through and through i ended up pulling uh pulling nearly a 24-hour shift because of how how crazy that that was and uh right in the middle of it was was christmas day lunch and uh we were you're looking at what 600 people dining and it's one sitting pretty much and wow. there's a half hour difference between the what between the sittings and you've got all these university of sterling students who come and help out and i was working there like two months by this point and i i was you know i was a little bit of a jack lad i thought i i had it all and i was working the beverage team and i was given the 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 whole uh the whole conservatory on the back of the Strathairn, the big restaurants, you're probably talking about 60, 70 covers. And I was given the, the as the sommelier for that day. I had no frigging clue what I was doing with Weiner by this point at all. And uh, I looked around me and everyone else in this space was one of these U University of Sterling students. I think there was one, one, uh, one chef de rong who was helping, helping to run the station. And everywhere I looked, it was just a complete and utter shit fest. <laughs> uh, for people who had paid thousands of pounds, uh, of course, I, I probably shouldn't admit to this. I'm sure it's much better now, of course. But I remember people being served Christmas puddings on saucers <laughs> rather than on plates. And you're just like, what the hell is happening here? So that's probably number one. Uh, second one was a similar situation at uh, St. Clair Beach Resort. I ran a restaurant called Pier 24 with some of my great colleagues that came from came from the UK to come and help me. It's a brand new hotel. We'd been listed in the best 50 in, in uh, New Zealand and we got slammed uh, one night. There was only four of us on shift. Uh, I was supposed to, I was, wasn't even supposed to be there. Jumped in as maitre d' and, uh, and actually, you know, you're getting that flow, you're getting that incredible buzz space and you're like, I'm, we're, we're on top of this and we're nailing it. 
we should have had about nine staff on. I think we had four. Uh, and the chef was uh, Michael Coffin. is a great guy, but when he was uh, when he was uh, having a shitty, he was having a shitty for sure. And uh, he was he was giving it to me in the kitchen. Guests were complaining. Like we're, we're dealing with the whole thing. And then about ten thirty, a table which uh, I'd gone to the bar. They told me that they were that they were. Uh, they were waiting for a table and I'd given them a a bottle of complimentary champagne walked up to me just as the kitchen had closed and said sorry I'm just wondering whether our our table's available yet and uh, this is like I think it's from like eight o'clock and it's now 10 30 and I found out that they carried on ordering champagne and then I was like oh the, the worst situation you think damn what am I meant to do now and the guy was screaming at me like the guests in the restaurant were like oh didn't know what to do the and it was just a complete shit fest of a night but uh, it's those those moments that make you think that, that anything's possible and frankly it really is right I mean if you can handle that stuff you can handle absolutely anything at all I assure you yeah absolutely I think that's that's you know that's the meaning of the podcast as well. So, you know what 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 can we take from this that you think the green spaces are the way forward in the UK? There's going to be a thriving hospitality industry when we come out of this. If if you can give a message of solidarity, a final message for anyone who's listening, what 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 would it be? I think it's this. I think that uh, we as a we as a sector. Uh, as I just explained with those examples, we, we know how to put up with the crap from lots of people. We know how to deal and, and crawl out of the crawl out of out of the ship too. And I think that we're also super sociable and we really work together. I think that uh, if anything, this has probably taught our government here in the UK that we're not low skilled workers. We're really Im- important workers we are important to the fact of the the social fabric of our country Uh, and i think that people are going to remember that through and through when they come out of here they are going to go back to the pub they're going to go and get uh, food out and they're going to absolutely love it and they're going to need us more than ever so i think that that should keep us upbeat positive and ready to bounce back because that's what we're going to do we're going to bounce back like hell Yes, that's brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat. It's been fascinating. So I just want you to stay safe and love to your family and keep up the cooking and the foraging within a an hour's radius. <laughs> um, so also, if you wanna, if you do wanna watch the full video, uh, albeit in an isolation style, then you can check it out on my YouTube channel, which is Matt Farrell, or you can go on our website, which is fazmangos.com. To listen and subscribe, you can go to various podcast platforms, Apple, Google, and Spotify podcasts. Thanks once again, everyone. Stay safe. And thanks, James, once again. Thank you.